0: But uh, we face kind of a, of a related dilemma and question when we think about following Jesus. Not that He gives us a job interview necessarily, but, but we have a question that maybe is in the back of our minds a lot that goes something like this. What is the place of planning in the life of a Christian? Planning. Beyond that, what is the, what is the place of, of things like dreams and aspirations and even ambition in the life of a follower of Jesus. How does that dovetail with knowing God and obeying God and being led by God and recognizing His Lordship in our lives? I mean, does God want us to have plans for the future? Does He want us to have dreams and aspirations for the future? And if so, how are we supposed to, to follow those things and follow Jesus at the same time? Can that be done? How can it be done? Have you ever thought about that? Uh, I want to think about it a little bit this morning, and I wanted to to let James kind of lead us into the discussion. Uh, Last week, we read some verses in James chapter 1 about how Christians in different financial situations should think of themselves. And James said this, he said, the poor brother should glory in his exaltation, whereas the rich brother should glory in his low position. We, We got that far, but we didn't go a whole lot into the next phrase where James says this. He says, like a flower of the grass the rich man will pass away. <clears throat> he will fade away in the midst of his pursuits, James then says a couple verses later. James is introducing here really another theme. It's, it's related to that theme of material wealth and how to deal with it that, he talked about, that we talked about last week, but it's distinct from that. It's a different idea, and James goes into more detail on this particular theme way over in chapter four. So turn over to chapter four of James, and we're going to read verses 13 to 17. James As it is you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. We looked a little bit at that last verse a couple weeks ago, but what about the rest of this passage, and what is James saying here? He says, what is your life? Okay, good question. Then he says this, for you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So there you go, that's your life. What is James trying to get across here? He's obviously saying it very forcefully, which is what he usually does. But before we get into James's intended meaning, let me first look for a minute at what this does not mean, what it does not mean. Because this verse, if you take it just by itself, and then if you maybe add a few other verses in the Bible to it, can be misunderstood to say that human beings are by nature insignificant and worthless and powerless. And therefore, since we are nothing but insignificant and worthless and powerless, you know, worms, that our proper response to God is to cower in fear and to to be paralyzed by our inadequacies and never to aspire to much of anything, because after all, we are just little insignificant bugs in the grand scheme of things. And that's why a lot of influential thinkers over the centuries, people like Friedrich Nietzsche and Ayn Rand and lots of other uh, thinkers have openly despised Christianity because they say it 's a religion for the weak it 's a religion for for the losers, for the people who, who can 't make it on their own. Christianity is, in other words, a crutch, a crutch. Well are they right? Are these people correct in a sense they, they are right because Because Jesus once said, what? He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the people who look inside of themselves and realize they don't have what it takes, and so they have to reach out to God. That's a biblical idea. In order to become Christ followers, we first need to come to the end of ourselves and not be so dependent upon ourselves, right? But, but. What the Holy Spirit reveals to us when we come to Christ is not that we are totally worthless and insignificant beings. No. It is that we are incredibly valuable but very broken. We are incredibly valuable but very broken. There is a big difference between something that is worthless by nature and something that is of great value but is badly broken and so it doesn't work and needs to be restored. We are God's image bearers. And so by nature, we are, by nature, we are then of great value, great significance, and for that matter, great potential, great potential. Whenever I'm reminded that some people think about Christianity as a crutch, I, I often think of, of Psalm number 18, Psalm 18. It's a real long Psalm. It's a great one to read through, though, just to meditate on or just to worship with. David wrote Psalm 18, and I'm not going to make you turn there, but let me just read to you some of it. It starts out, I love you, Lord, my strength, my strength. And then David goes on to talk about how his enemies almost overwhelmed him because they were stronger than he is, and how he was helpless without God's intervention. So to that point, it's going along kind of like that idea of, of weakness, which, is okay. But then he says this. He says, For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lights up my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. For who is God but the Lord, and who is a rock except our God? The God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for a war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation, and your right hand supported me, and your gentleness made me great. Now, are those the words of a a hopeless worm who is cowering in weakness? I don't think so. For David, his faith in God was not a crutch. It was more like his wings. It was an invitation to a life of adventure, not a life of being paralyzed by his inadequacy. I love Psalm 18. Go back and read Psalm 18 this afternoon. There's an assignment for you. But, but let's get back to James now because since we know maybe what he didn't mean by this, let's find out what he does mean because he has a very important word of warning for us. And here's his warning, and it keeps with our theme of the series, which has been don't get the wrong idea. James is saying here, don't get the wrong idea about who's in control. Don't get the wrong idea about who's really in control. You see, some of James's scattered congregation, we've talked about them. Right? Many of them probably came from the church in Jerusalem. Persecution came. They had to scatter to different places throughout the Roman Empire. Some of them perhaps have been won to Christ. Most of them were Jewish. They were in all different places. And he's trying to minister to all of them. And some of these people are starting to kind of feel their oats, as it were, because they've done pretty well for themselves out in the world. Their lives are running on all cylinders, and they had entered into business. And they were making some very detailed, very elaborate, very long-term plans, and they were very vocal about these plans. And they were saying, hey, here's what we're going to do. Here's what we're going to do. And by implication, here's what we're going to do, and nobody can stop us, right? We're going to build this dream together, standing strong forever. Nothing's going to stop us now, or something like that. And this kind of thinking appeals to us, right? We start singing that song when things are going well or when things are looking up or maybe when we're young and and energetic and all of the avenues seem open to us or when we start a new job or when a new exciting season of life comes along and there's all this potential, we tend to think like that. Yeah, nothing can stop me now. Other times, we might not have that kind of positive attitude, but we're still very set on our plans, and they're not changing because these set and unchangeable plans are coming from some assumptions that we've had our whole life about how life is supposed to go, right? Plans for education, plans for a career, plans for marriage and family, plans for home ownership, plans for buying this or that item, plans for going on this or that vacation, maybe plans for a certain type of retirement for pursuing life goals that every good American citizen is supposed to achieve, right? It's built into us. And, and these plans that we have, whether they're spoken or unspoken, some of them are maybe for things that are years off in the future, and others are maybe for things that are next month, but we have them. James says here, he says, look, the problem, the problem is not that you're making plans it's not a bad thing to, to plan ahead. It's not, that's not evil. In fact, it's a good idea. Isaiah tells us that a noble man makes noble plans. We're not supposed to just take off on a wing and a prayer all the time without considering where we're headed or how we're going to get from point A to point B. The problem, says James, here it is, is that we can often make these plans under the delusion that we can also control all the outcomes. The problem is we make our plans under the delusion, the misunderstanding, that we can somehow also control the outcomes. And when we do that, when we do that, we have that hidden assumption, we're actually taking the place of God. And God doesn't take very kindly to people stepping into his shoes. And so James says to these folks, he says, come now, come now. That's actually a phrase you don't see a whole lot in the Bible, but he's basically saying, wait, time off, time out get off of the freight train, come over here for a second, because I'm about to talk some sense into you. He says, look, the truth is you don't control the outcomes. You never did. In fact, not only might you not be able to fulfill your plans for next year's business trip, you might not even be alive next year or next week because your life is a vapor you're like the grass of the field. You're here today and gone tomorrow. Now, James here is not denying the significance and the worth of a human being. What he is saying, and we have to be careful with this, he's saying there is a path that leads to insignificance and worthlessness, and we can get on it. The way to take that path is to make your plans and to live your life under the assumption that you can just kind of take the place of God and control all the outcomes and, and, and be your own captain of your own soul. That's the way to take a life that was invested with immeasurable worth and in the end make it worthless. To get to the end of the road and find out that you've built nothing but wood, hay, and stubble and and that you've lived an empty and insignificant life. It is possible. Now, what's the cure for this? How do we get off that particular train? What's the adjustment that needs to be made? James, as usual, is perfectly clear. He says, look, what you should be saying and thinking is if the Lord wills. If the Lord wills, we will live, he adds that part, and then do this or that. Now, I want to take a little diversion here because I can't go any farther without making a couple of comments about prayer. First of all, when you hear this phrase, if the Lord wills, you might think about your prayer life, right? We often think about it in the context of prayer, that we're praying and we say, God, if you're willing or if the Lord wills or whatever. But you know what? You almost never see that phrase in biblical prayers. This is not a verse in which somebody is praying. This is a verse in which somebody is making plans. You almost never see people pray, God, if you're willing. It's not, it's not necessarily wrong to tack that onto the end of a prayer or to say that somewhere, but I would say it's usually superfluous. It's unnecessary. You know, if you're asking God, You're asking God. He knows you're saying, if it's your will. You know, no, no kid says to his parents, hey, mom, if it's your will, can I go get a snack from the fridge? No, he says, mom, can I please go get a snack from the fridge? It's understood that if it's her will, because she's the one who's in charge. It's up to her to answer the request. So, maybe we don't need to say that all the time, but more importantly, let me say this. Let me say this, if you're wondering whether James is talking to you this morning, if you're wondering whether you're one of these people who's on this train and not considering God and just plowing through with your life and all that, probably the number one symptom, probably the number one piece of evidence in your life that you've been barreling ahead with your own agenda with no heed of God is prayerlessness. It's prayerlessness. Think about it. How often do you get to the end of a day or maybe even the end of a week and if you, if you took the time to look back, you'd discover that you, you took no meaningful time discussing your plans with God. You know, maybe you said thank you for the food, and, and maybe you kind of said hi to God each morning, read some of the Bible or whatever, but, but you, never, you never really got with Him and, and placed your draft agenda before Him for correction, as it were, asking for His guidance, inviting His input, seeking His empowerment, asking for His wisdom, stopping and listening for His voice in the silent times, in the intervening moments recognizing and declaring that you are relying on Him and not on your own energy or talent or ingenuity. I expect that for for many of us here today, dealing with that prayerlessness may be literally the one and only thing that you take home from this Sunday. And if you do, that's great. Because prayer is our lifeblood in our relationship with God. We cannot have that relationship without it. Now, getting back to the phrase itself, Does this really make a difference to add those four words, if the Lord wills, if the Lord will, to our plans, whether it's our plan for the day or our plan for the next five years? Does it make a difference? Yes. As long as it's not just some formula that you're reciting and and you really mean it, it makes all the difference in the world, and the difference, difference has to do with this one little word that's part of that phrase. It's the word Lord. Lord. See, as Christians, we recognize and honor and worship and obey God as our... Lord Lord and there are two different senses really in which we take this the first way to recognize God's lordship and this is really James's main point here is it has to do with God's ultimate lordship over all of creation right God is Lord he is sovereign He is the ultimate authority, and He retains ultimate control over everything in His creation all the time. Nothing happens unless He oversees it and allows it, whether it's the conquering of a nation or the falling of a single sparrow. God is in charge of everything, period. And when we make our plans, yes, we should certainly ask God's guidance as we do this but even beyond that, God calls us to do it with the understanding that He may alter our circumstances in any way He sees fit in order to change those plans or even to cancel them altogether. It's up to Him. It's up to Him. He wants us to embrace Proverbs sixteen nine, which is a great, great verse that some of you have probably already memorized that simply says this, man makes his plans, but the Lord orders his steps. We say we're going to do this, but God basically is in charge. Do you have plans for a business trip in the next few months, some of you? Great. Good. But think about what might happen on a business trip. What might happen on a business trip? You know, back in the first century Roman world that that James is writing to here, they took a lot of business trips. It was very common for people to travel as part of their, their job. But you know what happened one time? One time a couple by the name of Priscilla and Aquila, They were in the tent-making business, and they took a business trip to the bustling city of Corinth. You know what happened to them? They ended up like basically going into ministry together and becoming a highly influential part of the early church. They hadn't planned on that. Kind of threw off their mojo. Two chapters earlier, there was this lady named Lydia. Lydia was in the high-end textile business, took a trip to Philippi, business trip. She ended up getting saved and becoming part of a church planting team. Because God, it says, opened up her heart to receive the gospel. And in doing so, he also opened up her life and her schedule to make room for him to interrupt her plans and her life change pretty profoundly. You never know what will happen on a business trip or a vacation or even a mission trip like the one that they just got home back from our team from El Salvador. Here's an example that I've shared with you before. Um, but it was pretty profound, so I'll share it again. But, but some of you remember that we took a trip, about 20 of us, to Burkina Faso, West Africa, back in 2012. And you might recall that on the day we were supposed to come home, we were in the airport there in Ouagadougou. We were checking our bags, and we were getting ready. We were on time to the airport, just kind of get ready to get on the plane and everything. And, and suddenly, the pilot of the plane decided for some unknown reason to just take off without us. That's what he did. West Africa wins again. I heard that's what that's supposed to to mean. But that that added two more days to our trip. By the way, in my experience, nobody says if the Lord wills or Lord willing more often than our international workers because they know virtually nothing on the mission field ever goes according to plan. But they embrace that. They've learned to, to, to live with that. So in our case, it meant that instead of flying back into Dulles Airport in Washington, D.C. on Friday morning, we were returning on Sunday morning, two days later, which meant that when I returned to my former church building to pick up our van, we had left it at the church I used to pastor, I showed up there, not on a Friday, but just as they were getting ready for Sunday morning worship. And I got to go in and see a lot of folks at my old church, which was great. But this lady came up to me that morning, hadn't seen me in, gosh, like 10 years, and uh, she didn't even say hi to me. She just shoved the discipleship book in my face and said, Pastor, you have to check this book out. And um, what she didn't know is that God had, through the Burkina Bay Church during that trip, laid a a burden on my heart one night that, that our church here at First Alliance had to begin taking basic discipleship more seriously. And that her word to me that morning was an additional kick in the pants for me from God and a not-so-subtle confirmation that God expected me to follow up on this burden and this leading He had given me. Now, I don't know if that is the only reason that 20 poor people had to stay in Africa, separated from our families and re-wearing all of our smelly clothes for the next two days. But, But I know that God was upsetting our plans at least for that reason. And in the long run, that sequence of events made a huge difference in the trajectory of our church. It even determined some things about how our staff functions today. Has it ever happened to you? You ever had to spend like an extra four hours in an airport or at the DMV? I'd rather be at the airport, right? <laughs> or some other fun place that you didn't plan on going? Keep an eye out. Keep, don't just sit there and stew like I do. Keep an eye out for God. God may be messing with your plans for a reason. I can remember one instance, and there have been many, but one time, particularly on a visit to Baptist Hospital, I, was, I, was, um, I had to spend some unplanned time in a waiting room because there had to be some test run or somebody couldn't see me right then or whatever, and so I'm just sitting there, and a woman came and sat in the seat across from me. She was clearly distraught, that unexpected delay allowed me to start a conversation with her and encourage her and pray with her. And you know what? That's, that's something that any one of us can do, We're not just a pastor, if you you're, if you're got your eyes open. One of the, the promises I believe I can safely make to you this morning is this one. Ready for a promise that will certainly come true? Your life will not go precisely as planned, right? If COVID taught us anything, it was at least that, right? But even if that's not how you learned it, one way or another, that train is going to get kicked off the tracks, which might be very discouraging for you initially. The question is, will that defeat you? Will that defeat you because you were thinking you could maybe be your own God and control the outcomes? Or will it cause you to stop and to think and to look up for the hand of God as He edits your story to make it a more significant and meaningful part of His story, which is the story that really matters? even though maybe it wasn't the way you had it mapped out. Part of following Jesus is recognizing that our plans, though yes, we do need to make them, are always subject to change without notice because God sometimes breaks in and messes them up. Now, there's another kind of variation on this theme. It's not James's main point, but it's certainly in view, and it's worth mentioning. It has to do with the other sense of that word that we use, Lord, Lord. You see, for the believer in Jesus, God is not just the Lord in the sense of being the ultimate authority over all things. He is also our Lord in the sense of being the ultimate authority in our lives. And sometimes God might not change our plans by making it impossible for something to take place. Sometimes he may instead challenge our plans by telling us to change them. In this case, we have not just a reality to accept but we now have a word to obey, and He's our Lord. That implies obedience. In 1992, I was working as an engineer for IBM up in the D.C. suburbs. And I will tell you, that company has career planning down to a science. Every single year I had to work on my employee development plan and answer all these questions. And when I filled out that plan in 1992, I don't know what I said to the question of where I planned to be 10 years from 1992, but I know that I probably didn't say pastoring a church in central North Carolina. That would have provided a good deal of of follow-up discussion with management. Nobody ever made me leave that job. It was going fine, which means that at some point along the line, Don and I had to make a deliberate change of plans in response to God's direction. But this is not true just for everyone, just for people who might sense a call to ministry. It's true for everyone who follows Jesus. There are times when God will call upon you to cancel something you'd planned on or to do something you hadn't planned on. And if you're not listening for the Lord's voice, You will miss out on the incredible blessing of adjusting your plan to God's and that will ultimately lead you to a pretty empty place. You may be very content right now in your position, and your situation in life, but God starts making you feel uneasy for some reason and you can't quite figure it out, but you think He might be prompting you to do something a little different or to make a change. Or you may be in a place where you're not happy at all. You're increasingly frustrated, maybe with your job, and you've been looking for a way to get out at the, at the earliest possible opportunity, and so you pray. But the more that you pray, the more that you sense God calling you to stay put for a season. Or maybe you're just saying to yourself, I could never teach a Sunday school class I could never lead a small group or a discipleship group. I, I, could, I couldn't do that. But maybe two random brothers or sisters in this church just came up to you and told you that they thought you could. And as far as you can tell, they didn't collude with each other. I could never work with children or, heaven forbid, teenagers. I mean, who knows? I might end up in El Salvador or something like that. That's not the worst thing that could happen. Don't let your assumptions or your carefully planned out trajectory keep you from responding to God's leading. Because remember, he has his own ideas about where your life is supposed to go, and they don't always agree with yours. But you know what? His plans are the ones that bring maximum meaning and significance to your life, the ones that make your life on this earth more than a vapor. Those are God's plans. Those are God's plans. Listen to what the author of Psalm 103 says about this. He says, As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. God's love, God's blessing, God's word, these are the things that make our lives more than a vapor. Jesus gives us kind of a New Testament twist on this idea in John 14 or 15 in the upper room with his disciples and some verses we've been studying lately in Sunday school, when he says this. He says, guys, apart from me, you can do nothing. He says it flat out. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But you know what he also says? He says, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do. And, he goes on, even greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. You see, we human beings... We need to understand this. Even at our best, even on our best days, we're never meant to operate on our own. It does not mean that we are insignificant or useless any more than your refrigerator or your computer is insignificant and useless just because you have to plug it in to get it to work. We're the same way. God made us to be plugged into something, to be plugged into Jesus. I'm using electrical imagery here, but but Jesus talked about a vine and branches. He said, you've got to be plugged in. Apart from our abiding in Christ, our plans make no meaningful difference. But when we surrender our plans to His, walking in the Spirit through prayer, listening to His Word, obeying Him, when we do that, the sky's the limit. doesn't mean we never make plans, but it means those plans are always subject to change. His change. His change. Now, Jesus actually modeled this for us in a number of ways. There's a very interesting verse in, in Luke 9:51. It says there, it's kind of a transitional moment in Jesus' life and ministry, and it says that He set His face to go to Jerusalem. He set His face to go to Jerusalem. It's kind of the the climax of the book in some ways. From that point on, from that point on, Jesus just, just singularly focused toward His mission in Jerusalem. He had a plan. He was a man with a mission. He knew His time was short. He knew what He had to do. From that point on, He was singularly focused on what He had to do in Jerusalem when He got there. The funny thing is, the closer Jesus gets to Jerusalem, the more He gets interrupted, if you read through Luke. Even on his final approach to the city in Luke 18, there's, he start, the momentum is, is being carried forward. You know, he's on his way to Jerusalem. This is the last approach to the city. He's got a whole crowd traveling with him. And then Jesus hears a blind man calling his name from the side of the road. The crowd attempts to go forward, and the people that are leading the way, Luke, Luke tells us, probably meaning the disciples, tried to shut the guy up. You know, they probably got in front of him and like, nothing to see here, Jesus, just go by, you know. What did Jesus do? He stops. He stops. Just like he stops again a few miles later for a tax collector sitting in a tree. Why? Why? Because our God is a God who stops. He is a God who has time for you. He is not a God who just watches you from a distance and and blows off your trivial little needs and struggles because He's got bigger fish to fry and more important things to do. No. Our God, as crazy as this sounds, considering who He is, will let you interrupt His day. He will then give you His undivided attention, and when He hears you calling, He will stop for you. In fact if you kind of take a a step back and look at it from a more kind of cosmic point of view, the whole story of our redemption, the whole story of the Bible really is is actually the story of a massive cosmic interruption in plans. It is. Now, I, I know, yes, we all know that God's ultimate plans can never be frustrated. I'm not challenging that. But let me say it this way, even though it will sound paradoxical. Before time began, before time began, God made a plan To have a change in plans. See, theoretically, we human beings were not required to rebel against God. And if we hadn't, let's face it, we would have saved a lot of trouble for ourselves and for God too, right? But when we freely, all of us, not just Adam and Eve, when we freely choose and chose to tell Him to take a hike and to make our own plans, God knew that He was going to have to make a very inconvenient and very costly detour to go way, way out of His way in order to save us because we had gone way far off the path of life in the direction of eternal destruction. God even interrupted the perfect fellowship of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been in this perfectly intimate relationship from eternity past, and God put that on hold to send the Son to earth to become one of us. And in the climactic decision of all of history, facing the most horrible moment in his life, the son knelt to pray. Plan A was to avoid the cross and find another way. If it be possible, Father, take this cup from me. Because he didn't want to go through with it. But then the son gives the plan back to the Father. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And so Jesus gave his life for us, for you. And in that one act of surrender and submission, Jesus forgave for all time all of our rebellion and arrogance and self-will and prayerlessness. And now he invites us to come back to him, Back to His original perfect plan to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever and to be united with the Son for all eternity. That's the plan. All we need to do is to repent and believe, to turn away from sin and this self-lordship that we're so attracted to and place our trust in Him, not only for our afterlife, but for our life here as well. Eternal life, a life of real meaning and significance starts when you answer that call. Does that sound like a good invitation? Or do you have other plans? Let's pray.